1: reenacting that now do you want to change that about yourself oh yeah
0: yes 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 of course people that are listening to the show want to change their lives and i know that and you know that and the truth of the matter is it's no easy feat right but When you do the work and you work it, it absolutely, positively, indubitably works. And so for an addict that's listening to this show, I just want to reinforce the fact that, you know, if you're practicing your recovery tools, if you're accessing support, if you have four, five, six people on your team, you can get healthy. It's all about Um, looking at your life from the perspective of knowing that there are ways that you're going to change that are actually going to be better than what you've chosen in the past, right? If you're a partner and you're wanting change for the addict, hey, you too can become educated as to what you can do, what you can expect, what you need, and what can transform in your life so that you feel safe and stable and you go through that process of grief and anger and you end up on the other side. It's all about post-traumatic growth. And if you just have somebody in your life that you love that, wow, this is really, really tough, then I want you to know, get educated. Go to a support group for people that love people that have this issue. And I promise this will absolutely be transformative. That's what this show's all about. That's what the support's all about. That is really what life's all about. It's about meeting the obstacles and saying to yourself, how am I growing stronger from this and what do I have to learn from it? That's how I believe that you should approach life in general. Um, I know we are on the eve of an election that both sides are very nervous about. And I know that there are a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen. No matter who you are, no matter what side you're on, it can feel very, very tumultuous. So here's what I believe. Whenever you're scared to death, you're frightened, you are anxious, you're nervous, you're worried. And what you have to do is rely on that good old serenity prayer. I'm telling you, if there's a prayer, St. Francis' prayer is pretty cool too, prayer that you need to follow, it's a serenity prayer because you know, what it does is it reminds you what you can change and perhaps what you can't. And you know how it goes. God grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the things that I can, um, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, there is some changes in problematic sexual behavior And treatment for the person with the problem, for the loved one. And if you're a sex addict that doesn't specifically have a relationship, we know it's going to be harder on you. You don't have that incentive to heal for yourself and for other people. You may have heard me say this before, but when we first started working in the addiction field back in the 80s and the 90s, we learned that you could not change your addiction for somebody else. You had to do it for yourself. And I'm going to call, I'm going to call bullshit. You don't hear me cuss very much, but. What I know is the bullshit beater is ringing, and the truth of the matter is you can do it for somebody else. Oftentimes, that's why an addict will look at his or her behavior. It's because it has hurt somebody else, whether it's your partner, whether it's your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. That's an okay reason to look into recovery. Now, the truth of the matter is that we know that eventually the change has to come for you. It has to come to you, with you, for you, uh, because it's about you. But initially, if you do it for somebody else, that is a suitable reason for change. And as a matter of fact, especially with a process addiction, it is, a, oh, it's imperative that you change. Um, whether that be for yourself or somebody else, because a processed addiction means that it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's something that you have to change because the truth of the matter is it's in your life 24-7. It's all around you. You know, people that have the addiction to sex um, very much have to deal with sex 24-7. They see the ads. You know, if you believe in pheromones. Their olfactory sense is drawn to it. Their visual sense is drawn to it. So one of the things that I promise, and I promise all my clients, that if you get healthy and you create substitutions and you find fellowship and connection, the antidote to addiction, you're going to be happier than you've ever been. And so it's not about doing without. It's not about deprivation. It's about substitution and connection. And that's what we believe in. Now, I have to say that we're always looking for new approaches, new opportunities to employ, to treat problematic compulsive sexual behavior. And so tonight... I have Clint Davis on, who is a big believer in looking at a balanced approach to helping um, problematic compulsive sexual behavior. You know, I'm leaning towards that. i got to tell you, I'm leaning towards that because I hate labeling somebody a sex addict. I don't like it, um, I would rather say somebody has a compulsive, problematic sexual behavior. But that is such a mouthful. Um, And the reason I hate it is because you are so much more than your sex addiction. And we know that. But it's an easy way to categorize the problem. And one of the things that I learned uh, after I graduated and, and got into the field of psychology, I learned that in actuality, most people like labels. You know, I would deal with a a woman who was uh, what we call today, very clinically, and she was unhappy, and she was stirring up the pot, and one minute she loved you, and the next minute she didn't, and one minute she was cussing you out, the next minute, She was asking for forgiveness. And that woman typically got diagnosed as borderline personality disorder. And when she met the criteria for borderline, um, and I would say, okay, I'm going to tell you that I think that you have borderline personality disorder. And then I would describe what that disorder actually meant. She would be so happy because now she had a label to put on it so she would know what she was dealing with. Same thing with bipolar depression, same thing with autism and uh, pervasive developmental disorder and Asperger's and depression. You get the drift. So a lot of times when people have a label, then they can really look at what do they need to do to be able to manage it. Um, so I got mixed feelings about this whole thing. Uh, I hate to label people, but if it helps them, that's fine with me. And I remember saying to Stephanie Carnes, who uh, is the president of ITAP, which is the organization, the international organization that uh, certifies us, said, "Well, you know, now that the DSM is not accepting." sex addiction, but they are calling it compulsive problematic sexual behavior. Are we going to change what we call ourselves? Because, you know, that might mean that we're not certified sexual addiction therapists anymore. Maybe we are certified problematic sexual compulsive behavior. No, you you get the gist. And she said, no, Carol, we're not going to change it. You know, for, for the time being, we're good to be seesat, and I could appreciate that. Could really appreciate that. Now, I I hope you're doing okay tonight. I, I began by referencing how tough this may be tonight and tomorrow, and the next day and the next day, and you know, I think this election is specifically tough because of everything we've been through. You know. Um, all the civil unrest and the protesting and the violence and the looting and the fires, the hurricanes. You get the gist. It kind of feels like a whole world has fallen apart. And that's again when I say, well, what can we change? The truth of the matter is, just look at yourself for a minute. And ask yourself, what can I physically do to improve who I am and to be a better person? For some people, that might mean, you know, taking up an exercise class, watching what they eat, putting on muscle, getting more sleep, taking vitamins. And what happens if they want to change emotionally? You know, if they have intermittent explosive disorder, what do they do? They take an anger management class. They practice something I talked about six weeks ago. Stop. You know, where you train the brain to use mindfulness and change the feelings that are within. Um, If they are looking for a spiritual change, you know, it's very, very true that one of the reasons the 12-step process is so... um, is so powerful is because of the spiritual component of giving up and surrendering all the angst and heaviness to higher power. And if you're somebody that doesn't believe in a higher power, then you got to figure out what tools and skills and energies are out there that can help you. So tonight, we're going to be talking with Clint Davis, who wants to be able to share his balanced approach to therapy, especially in dealing with problematic compulsive sexual behavior, and he is a believer in a variety of modalities, and he really does believe in trauma, and not all sex addicts have had trauma, but we know that a certain percentage of them have, and that's the same as with the The normal population, there are plenty of people that have experienced trauma in their life, the little T traumas or the big T traumas. So again, I'm always looking to interview people that come from a holistic approach and can share their knowledge with you and me so that we have more tools in our toolbox. So Clint Davis, I want to welcome you to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Howard, you can you hear me?
0: I sure can. Yeah, I, awesome. I was excited to to hear what you were doing because I'm a big believer in just utilizing a, a bunch of resources to to feel better, to think differently, and to change behaviorally. And you're somebody who really believes in that. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? and what you do professionally for people, and particularly sex addicts.
2: Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, it's good to talk to you again. I haven't seen you in a couple of years since the symposium. Um, so I know. two years ago, I think I sat in on one of your classes for the symposium. It was great. And so when I, I saw you on the listserv, I was excited to be able to you know, have the opportunity to get on here and talk with you and just your audience. And so I'm a CSAT. Um, I'm an ordained minister. Uh, I'm a combat veteran. I was in the Army for six years and had my own history of trauma. I'm, I'm now an LTC, which is a licensed professional counselor, uh, clinically certified trauma professional, um, and I own Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness. So it's a, pri- a private practice organization. We have about 17 therapists that work, or whether social, licensed social workers, LPCs, marriage and family therapists, we have three locations in Shreveport, Louisiana, Bossier City, Louisiana, and Ruston, Louisiana. Some down south, um, and we have a massage therapist, we have a dietitian, we have yoga, we have different things that treat not just the mind and not just normal counseling, but we can send our our clients to different modalities to be able to you know treat the body, the mind, and the spirit. We have a couple of biblical pastor pastoral counselors on staff, so if somebody you know, wants to really dive into the word with that faith, and they're able to, um, we're Christians. I call us Christians who counsel, but we're not Christian counselors. So we treat, you know, people from all kinds of walks of life. Uh, you know, we always take their faith into consideration and however much they want that to be involved in our, in our treatment. But if somebody comes in and says that they are a Christian, then we can dive into that part of it as well. Um, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary in pasadena california so i do a lot of what we call integration so integrating psychology and theology and really trying to make god and faith make sense with the science and the biology that we know um from a kind of trauma-informed model so that's kind of who yeah, we are how and,
0: you do that how do you combine both
2: well uh, you know for me i think that people have intrinsic worth and value um and I could hear the, you know, the tail end of what you were saying, and you know, people who don't have faith have to find worth and value within themselves. And so from a Christian mm-hmm. perspective, I believe that God loves everyone unconditionally, and so they have worth and value because God is good and God loves them and says that they have worth and value. And there's nothing that can lose that, and there's nothing that can gain that. And so there's no work you can do to, to, to earn God's love, and there's nothing so bad that you can do that you can lose it. And so knowing that, you have intrinsic value and worth. And I think a lot of our problems in society and as individuals comes from shame, comes from a root core belief system that says, I'm not worthy, I'm not valuable, I'm not loved, I'm not safe, I'm not secure. And that can kind of turn into a whole host of problems. And so, you know, your beliefs shape your thoughts and feelings, which shape your actions. And I think that, At the end of the day, we can do a lot of behavior modification. We can do a lot of healthy psychology and therapy. But if we don't change people's negative belief systems about themselves and others, then that continues to kind of rise up in times of stress. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, what kind of trauma do you see with the folks that you counsel? I mean, obviously you're a combat veteran, so you've seen the big T traumas. But what do you see Yeah, so.
2: Uh, you know, we we have uh, I think now six CSATs on staff. So it's me. It was me first, and I was the only one in about 500 square miles of Shreveport. And now we have I've gotten five of my other therapists trained. So we see a lot of uh, big T and little T trauma within our addicts. Uh, we see a lot of sex addicts. We see a lot of betrayed spouses. We do. We have uh, five or six groups going. For we have three betrayal trauma groups. Whitney Voss, one of my therapists, leads that. And then myself and Ross Giffins, we lead the addicts groups. Um, and we continue to see, you know, lots of big T trauma, little T trauma. And, you know, for people listening, big T trauma are things like, you know, rape and war and violence. And little T trauma is things like, you know, maybe a father who drinks a lot, but he has to, you know, he, he drinks, but you don't really notice it. It doesn't, you know, strongly affect you every day. But over time, it starts to wear on your emotional responses and on your fear and on your anxiety. And so we see a lot of little t trauma, and that was one thing I, you know, was excited to talk about tonight. was just the idea of trauma in general. You know, I like to kind of describe trauma as anything that's not nurturing. And what I mean by that is, you know, over thousands of years we've, we've grown to not have claws and fangs. You know, we haven't developed the ability as human beings to be violent with one another genetically we've continued to you know, need connection and need building each other up and needing to work together to have a better society and unity. I know you might not believe that in 2020 and with election day upon us tomorrow, but the reality is, is that you know, as human beings, we're created to connect and to build each other up. And so when we don't do that, whether that's relationally or emotionally, I think it's traumatic. It may not be big T trauma where it affects everything that you do, but it certainly affects your view of others, it affects your view of a creator or a God or a good being, and it create you know, it affects your view of yourself. And so I like to say that I think everybody has trauma. You know, it might not be trauma that again made them dysfunctional, but it certainly is is things that affected their life. And so um, you know, one thing we know about as I was gonna talk about tonight was the ACE scores. And one of the things I see in betrayed spouses and addicts a lot is, a, is something that's not on the ACEs score. So the ACEs score is adverse childhood effects. You know, that's things like physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, physical and emotional neglect, mental illness in the household, incarcerated relative or parent, substance abuse, mother treated violently, and divorce. And so there's 10 of these major things that are that everybody says is kind of normal for the large majority of people that they've uh, done research with. Well, one of the things that I've done in my practice and over the last 10 years, I, I also work in human trafficking with the FBI and Purchase Not For Sale, which is a recovery program for women out of human trafficking. And I've heard over and over and over again um, sexual abuse, but also same touch, uh, same sex touch or uh, opposite gender touch at a very young age and what I mean by this is that one of the things that's not on the ACEs score is sexual neglect mm-hmm. and so I grew up in a church community I grew up in a, in a home where no one talks about masturbation, no one talks about menstruation, no one talks about safe touch no one no one tells me about you know erections or orgasms or wet dreams or, you know, what I can and can't see on the television. Um, and I think that that's neglectful as much as not feeding your kids. Because if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of need, what's on the first, pyra- you know, the first line of the pyramid, food, water, and sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. Again, that doesn't mean you're going to die if you don't have sex, but it means that you are a sexual being and you have to have a healthy view of yourself and others sexually or you're not going to get to that higher level on the pyramid, and so I w- I've been surprised when I speak at things, when I go to conferences. You know, I can ask a room of a thousand people to raise their hand if they, if their parents talked to them about masturbation or, or sexuality, and three people will raise their hand. And so when we talk about trauma and core origins, I think what I've seen is that has a lot to do with men and women's view of sexuality, view of their body, view of the other, kind of starts out being pretty toxic.
0: Well, you know, it it is such a cultural um, taboo to talk about anything that has to do with nakedness and the human body. And that's why, obviously, all those things that you referenced, whether it be masturbation or child play or erections or wet dreams, whatever that is, uh, we are taught not to talk about that. And yet that is a normal and natural part of life and or that's a natural way that the kids get exploited. One or the other. Depends on what we're talking about. So obviously you have a very healthy outlook in terms of what people need to know and what they need to learn about. And I'm curious, this is a personal question, but how did you become so open with knowing that this was really healthy sexuality to be able to talk about things that parents aren't comfortable talking about?
2: Yeah. I always have to apologize to my mom when I'm on things and talk, but the reality is, is that it was, it's been very personal to me. I, I, you know, I was experienced, I experienced uh same sex play with another cousin when I was younger and, you know, didn't know anything about it. We were wrestling after swimming in a pool when we were, you know, ten or eleven and my parents had never talked to me about anything sexual and so, you know, I got my first you know, obviously it had other erections, but one that was like noticeable and we're wrestling and I you know, I remember this feeling good but not really knowing what was happening. And I left and, you know, it was it was just what it was, and then I would go back over, and we were we would play X Men, Wolverine, and GI Joe, and you know we had clothes on and be wrestling, and then something would feel good, and I'd be like, well, what is this? And you know over the course of a few months, you know I kind of realized like I don't know what's up with this, so I tried to talk to my mom about it, and I remember she just kind of handed me this book. My dad and her were divorced, and so he wasn't around, and I remember looking through this book, and it was about puberty and developmental and sex, and I'm like trying to figure all this out, eleven or twelve year old and I just remember like kind of shoving it and not really just feeling lots of shame and being caught, you know, masturbating or something like that and and feeling lots of shame and and that never being addressed. And so as I grew older, uh, you know, I started looking at pornography when the internet was around and um, you know, magazines from uncles and cousins. And so that just became a very big problem. And not until I was probably 25, did anybody ever speak to me about those sort of things. And it was a, a friend of mine who was a college pastor and, I was about to get married, and I just was kind of confessing to him some things that I was doing and struggling with, and and that was really the first time ever. And I had been in church my whole life. I mean, I had been around people and been to youth events and you know conferences, and and I just kind of oh man, I got to deal with this. So started dealing with it. Then I just gotten back out of the army, um, so you know it was rampant when we were deployed and all over the place when it. And so you know, I just was hearing it from all these people and seeing it in all my friends' lives and. I knew it was going on with everybody, but no one was talking about it. At least to any adults. And so as I became a therapist, um and even going to grad school, like we still barely talked about trauma, we still barely talked about any kind of sexual addiction. And I just, you know, just kinda had this stirring, I would say, from God in my heart of like, Hey, we've got to do something about this. And so when I got my license and when I started working, you know, i had heard about, looked up, I knew Patrick Carnes was awesome and had great stuff and had read Out of the Shadows in college. And so I just started Googling, like, okay, I need to go get training. And then I saw the CSAT and I saw ITAP and the community, and I was just fell in love with all the information and all the conversations, and especially after going to the modules. You just, you know, I always tell people I would rather have gotten my, my CSAT than gotten my master's because I feel like I learned so much more there. Um, but even in that world, right, I mean, it's still, there's still parts of it that we're still trying to figure out. I mean, um, so I love that it's a, it's a community of people trying to help people with no judgment, no criticism and open to different faiths and different, you know, outlooks, but still all striving for health, for whatever that looks like for our clients and ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, so you got invested in, in addiction and wanting to help people, and obviously you've got this huge clinic, Um, tell me a little bit more about the ACE score, because I know that some people have seen that on TV, ACE, scale or score, uh, but it really is the Adverse Childhood Experience score, and so if you were working with a client how would you find out? Would you give them the test or would you ask them the questions to determine, you know, what kind of neglect, what kind of trauma, what kind of abuse they might have experienced?
2: Yeah, so I see a lot of people, I mean, I would say a large majority of the people that I see minimize their trauma. And what I mean is, is that, that we measure it against the wrong thing. So as an Army veteran, somebody will ask me to speak at an event for Veterans Day, and I'll always kind of be like, well, hold on, I wasn't like – you know, deployed five times, I didn't have to kill a lot of people, like it wasn't that bad. it could have been worse, right And so, I feel like a lot of us do that with our own trauma when we look at the ACE score in our childhood. we say, "Oh, my childhood was fine, oh, this addiction has nothing to do with my attachment or my parents. They were great, you know oh they did the best they could, and we kind of say, "Oh, we knew other kids who had way worse lives, and so I kind of get that assessment just through conversation, and I'm always kind of listening to, well, what did you go through? And tell me a little bit about your childhood. And I like to ask mm-hmm. people, you know, if you, uh, you ha- especially if they have children, hey, do you want the same relationship with your child as you did with your father or your mother? And, and usually people, you know, kind of scream at me, no, of course not. And I say, well, hold on, why, why is that not okay for your kid, but it's, but it's okay for your inner child? And that kind of opens the door to saying, okay, well, let's look. And I, I kind of just take them through. Um, a very gentle family assessment out loud through conversations. You know, what did you learn about love from your dad? What did you learn about safety from your your parents? And generally these things come up, whether it's physical or emotional abuse. A lot of times people don't have the language for it. So I don't really like to give the checklist because, you know, a lot of times people won't call things abusive because they don't even know it's abusive, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I kind Mm -hmm. of generally listen And then I'll name it for them. I mean, I don't know how many women I've worked with who have been, you know, sexually assaulted or raped, and they won't call it that, you know, until six or seven, eight sessions in. And then finally we get to name it for what it is because there's so much shame related to, oh, I shouldn't have been drunk or I shouldn't have been there. It's my fault. And I see a lot of people do that with their parents. You know, oh, I was being disrespectful. It was fine that my dad hit me in the face, you know. And it's like, well, regardless, that's still physical abuse. You know, regardless of what you think, and so we just kind of take it through there and and what we look at is current behaviors that are happening, and you can you can trace with the a score from these these ten things to current behaviors as adults you know smoking, alcoholism, drug use, lots of missed work, um, lack of physical activity, obesity, depression, suicide attempts. so we see these things in our office these these symptoms come in which are again just symptomatic of a root cause and so we can trace it back to these things that they've been through and then for me with being trauma-informed I trace it back even deeper and say well what does that say about you you know what is what is the belief system that was formed about you when your dad hit you or when you were left without food or that you only had one parent in the household or that your dad was in jail or your mom was in jail um So that's kind of how I pair it all together.
0: That, And then I would assume that the more trauma they have, whether it's little T or big T, the more neglect they have, the higher they function on the A score, um, that's what makes a difference in your services because at your center you uh, do trauma-informed therapy. So tell our listening audience a little bit about what trauma-informed therapy is all about
2: yeah so you know we're really trying to help people change how they see themselves and their belief system you know our our whole society you know in the last fifty or sixty years, especially, has been so focused on behavior modification, and even you know as a Christian, I would say the American Church really has focused a lot on behavior modification, and what I mean by that is you know let's talk and let's figure out how we can stop these behaviors. Oh, you're smoking. Well, let's do these. You know, let's get a patch. Let's get you know things going. You're you know you're drinking. Let's get you in twelve steps. And, and all of those things are great. The problem the problem is is that if you just modify behavior and you don't modify the belief system underneath it, then when there's stressors, when there's problems, as me and you would say, our three circle exercise, right? All that outer circle stuff goes away, and the slippery slope behavior starts. Then relapse is happening very soon. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I care – I tell my addicts all the time, I want you to be sober, but I care more about recovery than your sobriety. I care more about you uh-huh. doing the work and being honest and having integrity because you love yourself and you believe in yourself and you believe you, you know, that your spouse and your family deserves it than I do if you slip up and watch porn this month or if you slip up and act out. Obviously, I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to have an affair. I don't want them to go back to prostitutes. I don't want them to – you know betray their spouse, but you could probably say the same thing, Dr. Carroll. when you have a spouse in who's done the recovery work, a lot of times they'll say, "Yes, I don't want them to act out, but I realize they might. The more important thing is they don't lie to me
0: Well, absolutely, because honesty is at the foundation of good mental health and not you know experiencing ongoing addiction and And it sounds like such an oxymoron, but if they're honest about the fact that they slipped or that they went into a relapse, they're much more likely to be able to overcome that and learn how to manage it effectively. And so, you know, obviously, trauma-informed therapy has to do with uh, finding those modalities that really help process Things we may have suppressed or repressed, minimized, justified, whatever it is. And you're an EMDR specialist, are you not? Yes, ma'am. So tell our listening audience a little bit about EMDR.
2: Yeah, like you said, a lot of, a lot of things um, that happened to us in our childhood that would be big T trauma or little T trauma, we, we suppress or we repress. You know, we, we don't want them to be real. We don't want them to have happened, so we shove them down. And what happens in our brain is that we have what's called a memory network. So if the beliefs, if if in your younger childhood um, something traumatic happened, your father, you know, physically abused you. Let's use that for an example. Well, that behavior from your father said something about you. It said something about your safety, and it said something about your lo- your, your your the love that you deserve. And so I call that uh-huh. a violation of love and trust. So when there's a violation of love and trust early on in childhood, there's attachment failure, meaning The person who's supposed to be safe and provide you with love and security has failed that attachment, so you have changed your belief system about yourself and others. I'm bad. I deserve to be hit. People deserve to be hit. Adults hit and are unsafe, and then in some cases, God is unsafe and not protecting you. And so you move through life with that lens, and so therefore you start to behave in a way that, that says, oh, well, I believe that about myself and others. So then other teachers see you and say, hey, you, know, you got in that fight at school. You're a bully, right? And then another thing happens when you're in college, and another thing happens in your adulthood. And then you find yourself in our offices, and to you, these are all random events. But with EMDR, we're able to you know, kind of map out, okay, you're here because of this specific current behavior. What is that? What did you believe? What do you believe about yourself around that? Oh, I believe I'm bad. Okay, well, what does that make you feel? That makes me feel shame. Okay, well, what are the body sensations that you feel? Oh, well, I get clenched teeth. I get hot. My adrenaline goes up. My blood pressure goes up. And so then we take people back and say, well, what's, when's the first time you ever felt that way? Oh, when I was five or six, my dad punched me and slapped me and you know, threw me in my bedroom. Okay, when's the next time? And, and so what you do is you do eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So we take somebody through that process of that memory. And what typically happens is is that the their their symptoms are really high when they think of that memory and after we do the reprocessing it lowers from a 10 to let's say a 7 and then a 6 and then a 5. And the beautiful thing is is that if if I'm bad is that is the belief in that memory then it ties into all the other memories where they felt bad. And so instead of all being 10s or 7s when you lower them, they all lower together because they're all connected in that one root belief system. And obviously, if you have lots of trauma, then you have to do that around other belief systems like, I'm dirty. A lot of our prostitutes or human trafficking victims, you know, they have this dirty mentality I'm dirty. I'll never be clean. And so, but the good thing is, is if we take them, if we change that belief system from dirty to clean, then they're clean in all areas. If we take that little kid from I'm bad to no, I'm good, then they're good in all areas. And so although they may have bad memories, those bad memories aren't as triggering and not overwhelming to look back on.
0: Yeah, well, you did a really nice job of explaining that. And, you know, I can remember when EMDR came to be and I thought it was hocus pocus. And I said I (laughs) would never be associated with that. And that's crazy and I heard horrible things about it that it brought up uh, repressed memories and the therapist brought those into play, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward 30 years, I too am an EMDR certified trained therapist and I find it to be the most effective uh, tool in processing trauma. Now, it's not effective for everybody and, you know, it to the degree that somebody – has traumas to work through, it can take a little bit of time, but it really is, I'm, I'm Ericksonian in nature, Milton Erickson, that is, and he really believed that yeah. we had a lot of the skills we needed to work through our problems, and EMDR really taps into our own knowing and being. It's just, it's a wonderful way of getting there. Um, so I'm glad to see that your yeah. clinic also, you know, utilizes the EMDR, Because you really do a lot of stuff. I mean, tell me how a dietician or chiropractic services could help somebody who's experiencing trauma.
2: Well, I I think it goes back to being trauma-informed, I think, well, on two levels. One, I believe as a Christian that other Christians have the Holy Spirit living in them. And so when they love on people, when they support people, when they care for people, there is a supernatural power that is – you know, being played in between people because they're seeing that person as loved and valued and, and special and unique and secure, and they're seeing them as deserving of that treatment, which means that typically if they if they interact with them, they're going to get those type of behaviors and that type of emotion shown to them, which I think is great for everybody. But on another, mm-hmm. on another level, um, if you're a chiropractor and you're trauma-informed – I'll use myself again – we have two children. I have a old, my oldest is about to be six uh, Wednesday, and my youngest three, two boys. And my oldest he has really bad food allergies. And what got me into this was that when we when we tried to seek help for these this rare disease, he he almost died twice the first year of his life. And so we had PTSD, and we sought we sought treatment and help from chiropractors and doctors and. But none of them were trauma-informed, so they would minimize our problems or dismiss our problems or say things that were trivial or, you know, that were uh, harmful to us. And so I realized, like, man, if I could have people on staff that did these type of things, like a family medicine doctor, a chiropractor, a dietitian, and they were trauma-informed. They, had, they come to our staff meeting, and they hear our clients' cases, and they understand what these people are going to feel like when they come into their office then on the first, the first interaction, they're not triggering them. They're de-escalating them. They're meeting them where they're at so that they're more open and susceptible to care and treatment because they feel safe, which is, I think most of us as trauma survivors, you know, our main thing. And I think all humans, you know, all humans when we go into a new environment where somebody's going to put their hands on us or they're going to hear about how we overeat or they're going to hear about how we're not taking care of our menstrual cycle or whatever the thing is, we feel a lot of shame. And so if I have staff members who are all on board with that model, then our people are getting the same thing from all of us, which brings a lot more healing a lot more quickly.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what are some of the ways that that you believe technology is negatively impacting our culture and our relationships? Uh, You know, I mean, so much uh, technology can be a good thing, and then – so much of it can actually be a bad thing.
2: Yeah, so another one of the things that I'd like to see in the next decade be on the ACES score is social media. <laughs> I think, you know, mm. I, I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma yet, but, you know, it was a great, um, a great documentary on, on how damaging social media is to our mental health. And, you know, the suicide rate for teenagers um, has increased 76% in the last decade self-harm is 200%, you know, depression and anxiety disorders are 20% increase. I mean, there's a, you know, there's direct causation almost, you know, I, you know, I haven't seen all the research, but there's a lot of really good research on correlation and causation of this last decade of social media. And so one of my, you know, my biggest pushes for people, especially, you know, the 30 year old and younger crowd is to take a a 90-day sabbatical away from it because their whole social, you know, we're we're wired for connection, right? And me and you know that, you know, a part of the root of addiction recovery is connection is is trying to find ways we can connect. And unfortunately, with social media, a lot of people think they're connected but they're not. So what I mean by that is they only know socialization through a picture online that people can like and that people can tweet and that people can heart People can tell you you look beautiful and give you affirmations, but when you have a miscarriage or you lose your job or you're struggling with depression, they're nowhere to be found. And mm-hmm. they know everything about you, but they don't know anything about you because we put you know our highlight reel online. We don't put the – I mean some people put the messy stuff, but the majority of people put our picture from vacation or Halloween costumes, who we're voting for, but we don't really know how to express ourselves vulnerably. vulnerably. Because there's really no one there to connect with. So you know, social dilemma has shown us and other research has shown that it, it's really just a dopamine hit. You know, when someone likes your picture, when someone tells you and and what it does is it incentivizes you to post more things. And now it's incentivized us to edit our pictures, to make ourselves look different than we are, to, you know, put our cheekbones in, to put our chin smaller, to enhance our eyes, to get a filter where we have no wrinkles. And so not only are we not really connecting, but now we're presenting a false person to the world that's not even really there. And so I think this is – go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say I absolutely believe that comparison, people that compare themselves to other people, that's one of the most deadly diseases we got going on. And social media makes that a 24-7 occupation.
2: Absolutely, yeah, they call I mean, we, Facebook, we all,
0: they call Facebook just, just not real
2: absolutely and and we're all guilty. I'm not on my high horse here i you know I'll post a picture of my yeah. kids and you know look for somebody to like it and think it's cute, and so I kind of made a commitment in February of twenty twenty um to not post any more personal pictures on my social media, and it's been very, very freeing. you know, I might change my profile picture. You know, and I might share some th- some of my beliefs and try to be positive. And from our own work pro- page, I share every day, but that's always mental health or theology or something that's encouraging. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredible because we used to be able to compare ourselves to you know we always compare ourselves, but now we compare ourselves to a thousand people that are all cropped and edited with no wrinkles and the perfect bodies, and and we just can't handle it, especially little girls. I mean that that sh- that's the I think Rob Weiss said that, you know, you hand a little boy a smartphone and he's going to look at porn and get addicted to video games. You hand a little girl a smartphone and she's going to get on Instagram and look at other little girls and other models and end up hurting herself.
1: Mm Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously, what do you tell your um, clients about technology? I mean, it's such an addiction in and of itself. How do you help wean them off?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I, I just did a talk a couple weeks ago at a young adult, adult conference, and I said, you know, we have to do this together, right? The answer is connection. The answer is community. So you have to find community to do it. You can't do it by yourself. And so um, you have to find three or four people in your, in your group and say, hey, can we team up together? Can we take 60 to 90 days completely off of social media? Let's go to coffee. Let's exercise together. Let's go to the park. Let's read a book together. Let's let's do something where we get serotonin instead of dopamine. Let's do something where we can, you know, it's going to be harder. It's going to take more effort, but it's going to pay off a lot longer and a lot stronger than this quick fix is. And so my advice has been for people if they're on social media, you know, check your clock hours on your iPhone. See how I mean, I had a client today tell me she she had to take a break because she was on there 17 hours a day and I'm like Woo! You know, I, I can barely <laughs> function, much less have enough time to be on there that long. But people don't realize how much they are. So I think they have to take a fast from it and realize, especially again for the thirty and under crowd, they have to experience life without social media to know what real life is. And unfortunately, from the time that they've been, you know, twelve, ten to now, they've always had it. And they don't know what real life is. And my fear, Doctor Carroll, is that in another decade, there's not going to be anybody around that doesn't realize they're they're in the matrix. You know, everybody right, who's ever grown be the up. Yeah, yeah, and it, well, we're almost yeah, there. I'm,
0: I am sure, Clint, that you find this to be true. But I work with a lot of recovering alcoholics and drug addicts as well as sex addicts, and for them, they either game or they're on their phones 24-7 producing that dopamine, and they don't even know that they're addicted. I mean, they do, but in comparison to sex addiction or to meth addiction or heroin, it feels, it feels like it's middle circle. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, yeah, it's a slippery slope because the wife gets mad, but it's not what is seen as an addiction. So I I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you've got these tips and tools. And, you know, I clearly heard you saying one of them was, why don't you take a little time off from it and substitute those behaviors and see how you feel? And I don't think it will be easy. I think people get a little antsy when they aren't able to look at their phone at the stoplight or while they're eating dinner or whatever.
2: Oh, I agree. It's going to be very difficult, which is why I said you have to have accountability. You know, you have to have people in your life, just like any other recovery model that you have some, you have to put good things in and you have to have good people around you encouraging you, you know, telling you not to get back on there, showing you, you know, the light end to the tunnel and then I think you know the whole goal is being not to not ever use social media, but it's being able to use social media appropriately. And if you've never not used it, then you don't know if you're using it appropriately or not. And so you know, for myself, taking a break now, if I go back on there, I'm way more aware of my time. I'm way more aware of other people's posts. I'm way more aware of oh, I gotta I gotta get off of here because there's some toxic you know political posts that I don't want to read. And I'm able to kind of get right back out. But for, you know, a long – if you haven't never taken a break or you've never lived without it, then you just cannot beat the machine. You know, your your neurology is still a caveman, and this technology is algorithms and manipulation, and you can't win. And that's so – you know, I know we both kind of like laugh at that because that's such the addiction model is this idea, I got this, you know, or – you know, I'm not going to do this again, or this is just one time, or I'm just going to get on there for a second, or I'm just going to do a little bit, or it's not hurting anybody, and and yet that's what everybody says about why they can't quit social media.
1: Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. Well, tell, tell our listening audience um, how they can get to your center and how they can call you if they need you, or, you know, I don't know, do you do virtual um Sessions and, and yeah, just let our listening audience know how they can find you at www.clintdaviscounseling.com. I mean, can they get on the site? Do you have any free resources? What's going on?
2: Yeah, so we have um, we have free resources on the site. We have a list of all our clinicians. We do do we do telehealth. Um, we can also direct you if you call our office and we're looking for a seaside or looking for somebody trained in your area. We would love to direct you to awesome people in our, in our network and in the ITAP community that are trained. We really want people to you know, have EMDR certified people, have people who are trained in trauma, have people trained in CSAT. We want people to get really good care. Um, so we would love okay. to direct people from wherever they're listening to those people in their area. Um, we have recently started a, a podcast uh, like yourself. It's called Asking Why with Clint Davis. And it's on iTunes or YouTube or Spotify or wherever pretty much any podcasts are. And we're about 10 or 11 episodes in, and our whole goal is to have these conversations to get to root causes. So we we integrate psychology and theology, and I have guests on every week to talk about these things and and really get down to the root causes. So whether that's systemic racism or policing or first responders or um, sex addiction or human trafficking, last week we did one on betrayal trauma. So uh, Whitney and I, she's another CSAT, we, you know, just did a two-hour session on what is betrayal trauma, what are the root causes, what are the recovery models, and we kind of take people through a what to expect for the spouse and for the addict. And um, so, you know, we those, – those are a lot of our resources. We have blogs that are on the website that people can get to that kind of, you know, are a shorter version of that. And then we have all And let me just ask you know, you.
0: Because I know you've got a special place in your heart for partners, and um, that isn't Whitney Sager, is it?
2: No, it's Whitney Voss. She's a Csat um, as well. Yeah, and she's Very incredible. Cool. She, she, and she, yeah, she, she loves the partners. I mean, she, lo- she uh, one of the my favorite stories about Whitney and, and the group is during Christmas time last year, they had a group where they had to release their anger and they wrote different things, negative beliefs about themselves on these ornaments. And so they uh-huh. threw them, We had this one brick wall at our office, so they were outside just smashing these ornaments against the side of the brick wall to engage, you know, and to honor their feelings because a lot of the betrayed spouses feel like they can't ever, you know, really let it out with the attic because they don't want to shame them, but they need to get it out. Okay. And so they were throwing these, they were throwing these uh, glass ornaments against the wall and they were shattering her plastic ones. And uh, one of the ladies, they accidentally had a plastic one in there. And so she's throwing this this ornament against the wall and just bouncing back off at her and they can't figure out why it won't break. And so they're all joking like, well, apparently you don't need to be angry about that or whatever, but it ended up being a plastic one. And so, uh, but through that, you know, these ladies are crying and laughing and hugging each other and just recovering in such a beautiful way um, together. And again, that connection, that community is what we're all about. And so, we're able to do that for our addicts and for our spouses. And we just think we have, you know, in our community, just some of the bravest people, you know, in the entire world who, who put themselves in these vulnerable situations with us as professionals. And, you know, they're really doing all the work. We're just showing up and kind of walking beside them.
0: I get that. And so I promise we need to have another dialogue. I love the fact that you've got a new podcast. Tell our listening audience one more time the name of that podcast is
2: it's asking why with Clint Davis.
0: Okay, and they can get it through Spotify and iTunes, and then
2: yep or YouTube. I want
0: to have you back. Be- I want to have you back because um, I want to talk to you about empathy, my very favorite subject in the whole world. Yeah, that's a deal.
2: Let's do it. That's a, that's a deal. Anytime okay. you want to do it, I love it. I, I've been listening to your stuff just to kind of catch up and. Like I said, I loved meeting you at the CSAT, and I love the work that you do, and I just thank you for all the energy and effort, you know, you put into this stuff, and, you know, you've been doing it for a lot longer than I have, and so, you know, I, there are people like you that I look up to in the community and um, just am honored to be a part of.
0: Well, you know, Clint, I say I'm, uh, proudly I'm going to be 65 on um, this Saturday, and I rollerblade and I pedal board and I paddle board and I work out every day and I have more energy than God and I love my life and um, but I am considered the grandmother of sex addiction in that I have the oldest podcast that's that's out there and so
2: oh honestly, man I saw God. you had like four hundred and something episodes I was like oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, I've been doing it since 2007, and I may only miss two shows a year. So I Incredible. just really believe in putting it out there. And, you know, we've got a lot of expertise out in the CSAT world, that's for sure. And I, I really love my colleagues that are appsats too, so now I get to double my fun. Clint, it's been a joy, and we got to go. It's at the end of the show, but I will have you back on. Let's try for the beginning of the new year, and I want to hear about your, your take on Partner Betrayal.
2: Absolutely, but well, God bless you, and have a good one.
0: Okay, Clint, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. All right. And I just got the old, uh, If you've got 90 seconds, Carol. So listen, guys, I appreciate that you're going through, and you know I love you, no matter who you are out there, sex addict, partner, loved one. You mean the world to me, and we can work on this together. So don't ever hesitate to contact me at text help with Carol the Coach. And I'll talk to you next week. And as I always say, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good one. And be safe, especially tomorrow. Bye.